Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 25th of June, 2021. And this is episode 444 of Bitcoin and... It was all Peter McCormick's fault. He tweeted out that that uh, El Salvador was going to airdrop $30 to all the individuals that wanted a Bitcoin. And instead of the good news that it should have been, <laughs> what did we get? We got another dip. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. Buy the dip. But Paraguay... We're just going to get on into the news. The Paraguay it, news is starting to starting to flow. And it started with this one, American University of Paraguay to accept tuition payments in Bitcoin. Namcios has it for Bitcoin Magazine. The American University of Paraguay shared on Twitter that it will accept tuition payments in Bitcoin as well as other cryptocurrencies beginning, beginning on August the 1st, 2021. Quote, from August 1st, you will be able to pay all of your tuition and fees with cryptocurrency. We take an important step towards innovation, a translated version of the tweet read. <clears throat> the University of Buena Paraguay's most prestigious educational centers and has been in operation for over 30 years, but it is still unclear how the university plans to accept or hold the BTC it receives as tuition payment on a technical level, but it has not indicated any plans to liquidate the Bitcoin upon receipt. The new move, which is part of the university's program of innovation and modernization, adds a new facet to a Bitcoin legislation bill to be outlined by the country in July. According to Paraguayan Deputy Carlos Rejala, the country plans to legislate Bitcoin as a medium of exchange in its commercial sector next month. Rejala also said that whether the bill it plans to present will seek to make Bitcoin a full legal tender in the country or not is still uncertain and yet to be defined. Paraguay's most prominent entertainment group, Grupo Cinco, has also demonstrated interest in accepting Bitcoin and shitcoins. The company will allow its 50,000 monthly customers to pay with Bitcoin at its 24 outlets, including restaurants, nightclubs, and pubs. In addition, as more companies and organizations begin accepting Bitcoin, the more likely it becomes that the Bitcoin bill will pass in the country's Congress. Quote, we are talking about leading Paraguayan entrepreneurs who have a lot of influence over the youth, Rejala said. This is an extremely important because it will be much easier for my fellow deputies to support the bill if there is social support at a local level, In quote. Paraguay is following El Salvador's steps and seems on its own path to officially become a Bitcoin supportive country in less than a month. If the proposed bill passes, it will set the stage for Paraguay to welcome Bitcoin businesses, entrepreneurs, and even miners. Okay, so Paraguay about to fall as the next domino. What, what is it that we would, you know, what is it that we would like to see? Well, actually not we. What is it that I would like to see this time around? I would like to see them not, I know this is going to, this is going to sound terrible guys, bear with me. I would like them not to see him make it legal tender. I would like to see Paraguay do another experiment where instead of making it legal tender, they just make it legal. They're not forcing anybody to use it, but they're not going to screw you over if you do. So you as a vendor or retailer or, you know, common person on the street, if you want to engage with the Bitcoin system, then you have no restrictions to do so. Now, why would I say something is that sounds this dumb, honestly, because it kind of does sound dumb. Well, I kind of look at it like the United States of America. There was supposed to be, back in the day when the, United, when the Union was formed, each state was to have its base, basically could build its own path into the future. 
And the federal government was there to regulate interstate trade, you know, protect the borders, and, you know, do excise tariffs for international trade and whatnot like that. But essentially, the states were left to their own devices. And you can see that in the language of the 9th, 10th, and 11th Amendments of the United States Constitution. However, as time has gone on, we've become homogenized and everybody is supposed to do the same and think the same and whatever. However, if we look at South and Central America, we have a group of countries that are not in a union, but they are very close together. They are interoperable insofar as clearly people cross over the borders for work, trade, you know, vacations, and whatnot like that. So what I'm suggesting here is that it would not, in my opinion, it would not be bad if Paraguay just said, you know what, let's not do the legal tender thing. Let's do, let's, let's introduce Bitcoin to the population, but let's do it in a completely different way, a completely free way where it's all the choice of the people of Paraguay and see how that goes. And that way we'd actually have like an AB test between Paraguay and El Salvador to say, well, what worked where and what fell apart where and, and why? Because we have two different systems that are looking at, it, we would have the potential of having two different systems looking at Bitcoin in a completely different way. However, both of them want to interact with the Bitcoin system. So I'm hoping <clears throat> that Paraguay does not make it legal tender. And that's not because I hate Bitcoin. It's just because we have this chance for an experimentation to occur and experimentation is always good. Unless of course you're Robert Breedlove and that experimentation basically burns your reputation for $30,000. That's not an option for me guys. I, I'm, I'm, I'm firmly against burning your reputation for something as pissant as $30,000. Now, Tanzania across the Atlantic and getting into Africa, uh, Tanzanian C-Bank says it is working on President's cryptocurrency push. Now, this is from Yahoo Finance. This is Nizalik Dowson. And this continues with a story that I presented either earlier this week or at the very end of last week, where the president of Tanzania had basically said, we've got, wrote a letter, honestly, to the central bank and said, I want you guys to start looking at this because we need to get ahead of it. Because if we're not ahead of it, we're going to be behind it, and nobody wants to be behind this curve ever. So let's find out what's going on here. The central bank has said it is working on President Samia Saluhu's Hassan's directive to prepare for cryptocurrencies, pointing to a possible reversal of a ban that it put in place in 2019. The new president, who came to power after the death of her predecessor in March, said this month the arrival of digital currencies in the East African nation was inevitable. Quote, in the financial sector, we have witnessed the emergence of blockchain technology or cryptocurrency, Hassan said during the opening, uh, a, the opening of a new central bank branch in the northern town of Mwazana this month. Quote, many countries in the world have not accepted or started using these currencies. However, I would like to advise the central bank to start working on those issue. Just be prepared, end quote. Her comments made shortly after El Salvador became the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender, prompted fresh debate over the role of cryptocurrencies in economies and remittance transfers. Tanzania's central bank banned cryptocurrencies in November of 2019, saying they, they were not recognized by local law. But it now says it is adapting following the president's comments. Quote, the bank is working on the directives given. A bank of Tanzania spokesperson told Reuters this week, declining to give any further detail. The spokesperson did not respond to questions on whether the bank plans to adopt existing cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin or was looking to issue its own digital currency as China has done. Hassan's comments reflect her much more open attitude to foreign investment, a shift from the stance of her predecessor, John Megafuli, who tussled with foreign gold miners and even locked horns with neighboring Kenya over access to the market. So another country may be falling faster than we thought. And I think this is going to go, I it's going to be like unzipping your fly. You know, once you, once you pull that little tab out and you finally get a hold of it, boom, you can take a giant leak, right? Real fast. And it's going to happen. 
However, given the past several weeks <laughs> of Bitcoin having this weird tendency to reverse course in the face of good news, I don't know how, how the market's going to take it. I, and a little aside on that, have you noticed this? Is it just me? Or is it ever since Elon Musk opened up his big fat mouth a couple of months ago and pull, pulled the plug? Well, he wasn't just, I've said it before, it wasn't just him, but he was the tip of that spear. <clears throat> it almost seems that any piece of good news is met with an immediate dip. And I'm not at all sure how that actually works, guys. I'm, I'm, uh, and again, if I'm wrong, then let me know that I'm wrong. But from what I've seen, I, like we got news yesterday that, or late last night, that El Salvador was going to airdrop 30 bucks per, in Bitcoin on all of the residents of, uh, of El Salvador if they wanted it. And what happened? The price started going down. How the hell does that work? So somebody please explain like I'm five how it is that what used to be news that sent the markets going up is now news that sends the market going down. So if you can line me out on that, I'd be much appreciative. You can always get to me at, at BENND77 on Twitter. My DMs are open. Please instruct me what the fuck's going on. Why Kenya should use Bitcoin as a reserve currency. This is out of CoinBeast and written by Marvin Colby. Kenya's financial ecosystem is inextricably linked to the dollar. Kenya's central bank is in charge of monetary policy, and it holds a substantial amount of the country's foreign exchange reserves in dollars. This exposes the country to systemic shocks in the economy as witnessed during the aftermath of the COVID-19 thing. For example, between January and December 2020, the level of foreign exchange reserves held by a central bank in Kenya fell by $1 billion dollars to 7.75 billion total. A case can therefore be made for allocating a percentage of its reserves in Bitcoin. This argument can be supported by a number of explanations. Kenya's public de debt has been surging out of control and currently sits above 50% IMF threshold. There is no surprise, therefore, that a sizable number of techno-savvy Kenyans have already begun holding Bitcoin. In Africa, Kenya ranks second to Nigeria with regard to Bitcoin activity, coupled with allegations of currency manipulation to hide the weakness of the Kenyan shilling and a fluctuating dollar. It is only prudent that Kenyan policymakers begin investigating new methods of cushioning Kenya's currency into the future. So they've got a basically kind of a bulletproof list of the reasons here. One is growing public debt. At the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Kenya's government had opened up to more debt from international institutions. More recently, the IMF loaned Kenya $2.4 billion in April, leading to a huge uproar from the citizenry. There have been rumors of the country's port being collateral for Kenya's debt to China. Oh, God. Currently, Kenyan debt sits at 65% of its gross domestic product. Wow. Okay. Uh, IMF, that IMF loan is just, by the way, those IMF loans are designed specifically to chain third world countries down. It's a slavery tool. That's what the IMF is. It's a slaving tool. And I, I know that's harsh, but it's, it's the damn truth. Two, Bitcoin adoption is on the rise in Kenya. Kenya is among the top 10 countries in the world with the highest holding of Bitcoin, according to statistics from 2020. A report by Citibank also stated that Kenyans had accumulated holdings of Bitcoin estimated at more than 163 billion Kenyan shillings. The figure amounted to 2.3% of Kenya's GDP at the time. This is despite official warnings from the Central Bank of Kenya for Kenyans to desist from engaging in the exchange of virtual currencies. Three, currency manipulation. The Kenyan government has been put to task on allegations of currency manipulation. A recent country report by the IMF, oh God, reported that the country's currency was overhauled by 17.5%. During Kenya's most recent bilateral trade discussion with the United States, the matter of currency manipulation arose with the Americans seeking an undertaking that the exchange rate would not be influenced. Four, weakening of the United States dollar. 
Kenya stands to lose a lot from the weakening of the dollar since Kenya's currency was pegged to the dollar in 1971. <laughs> Oops. The dollar holds a central role in global trade and financial architecture. In 2019, 90% of all currency trades had a dollar pair, and USD made up 60% of global currency reserve holdings. A major slump in the dollar would therefore have a devastating effect on Kenya's economy. So in conclusion, the Bitcoin model offers interesting solutions for policymakers. Kenya's current situation offers a perfect case for the allocation of a percentage of the nation's foreign exchange reserves to Bitcoin. The allocation would enjoy unique protection since Bitcoin's deflationary model does not allow for the creation of Bitcoins beyond the 21 million coin cap. Using Bitcoin as a reserve currency will also hedge Kenya against the runaway printing of the dollar evidenced by the recent printing of cash to issue in the form of stimulus checks. Despite the noble intentions of the American government in protecting its people from the effects of the pandemic, such actions lower the value of other currencies that hold the dollar as their reserve. Using Bitcoin as a reserve currency is also likely to be welcomed by Kenyans who have shown active involvement in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So, Kenya may be next, and hopefully Nigeria right after that, or, you know, right before it. It doesn't, doesn't really matter which way it goes. Honestly, the, the whole continent of Africa is ripe for Bitcoin development uh, within, within their own internal economies. So we'll have to wait and see. But this is what I was, I'd kind of been, you know, harping on this for about the last year and a half, saying that, you know, essentially my thesis is I don't care first world countries go all in on Bitcoin. Hell, I don't even care if they look at Bitcoin sideways. And I certainly don't give a shit if they hate it. I don't need their adoption. I don't need the West's adoption. I don't need China's adoption. I don't need India's adoption. What I need is all the countries in the world that have basically been left behind to gut up, grab a sack of balls, and tell the IMF, the World Bank, and other institutions around the world to fuck straight off. That they are sovereign nations, they are sovereign individuals, and they're going to do whatever the fuck it is that they please, and they don't want to hear about anybody else's bitching and moan fest, like Peter Schiff, right? So, so what I'm looking at from Mexico all the way down to the to the tip of Argentina, I'm looking at the entire continent of Africa, save um, South Africa because they're essentially first world country and in the West. Australia couldn't care less. New Zealand couldn't care less. But the Stans, like the Kazakhstans and the Pakistans and all that kind of shit, I'm looking at them. I'm looking at way eastern, you know, for the forgotten part of Eastern Europe. I'm looking at the Baltics, the Balkans. They're, I mean, honestly, if you add up all the countries in the world that have been left behind, you end up with a larger landmass than the first world countries in the, in, the Uni in, in the United States, in the world. There's a lot of power there. There's a lot of power. And if we can do this and be able to, you know, get these countries on a Bitcoin standard without fucking colonizing them, if we can do that, if we can respect their cultures, if we can respect their people, if we can respect their languages, respect their ideals, and not interfere with any of that shit and just get Bitcoin and the technology to trade Bitcoin with each other into their hands and then leave them alone, then what we will see is a complete renaissance that's worldwide. It'll be a beautiful thing to watch. However, what's going to happen? You're going to have Brock Pierce go down to some South American country and basically give us a bad name because he's a colonialist. I guarantee you. He'll, he'll tell you he's a libertarian and he tells you that he's going to be for the freedoms, but he's going to do everything in his power to act exactly the way most Europeans acted when they colonized the West. Yep. I mean, and that's just fact. That's not an opinion, man. I mean, the Europeans basically, they screwed over a lot of people. And is it that they're necessarily evil? Fuck, I don't know. I don't care. All I do know is that if we just get Bitcoin into the hands of the poor and we leave them alone and we respect their histories and their cultures, their languages and their people, then it's going to be a beautiful thing. Because then... I don't need to know about their culture. I don't need to know their language. Why? Because I'm transacting with somebody in another country who I know nothing about that I don't need to trust in a, the only language that I need, the language of value. For the first time in the history of the world, we have a tool that transcends cultures, languages, all that shit. 
and it just expresses value. And there's not a foreign exchange on it. It's not like I got to translate what the hell a dollar means in Kenyan shilling terms. I don't have to do that. We can just decide that that goat or that car or that piece of land costs this much Bitcoin. And that, be, that, that particular ability to communicate through nothing but value, no words, just numbers, is astounding. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, let's see here. What do we got? Oh, understanding the Cantillon effect or Cantillon effect, however you want to pronounce it. Increasing incomes versus rising costs. This is written by Mitch Morse, also for CoinBeast. Hal works day in and day out, year in and year out, at his diner. Over the course of several years, he has improved the diner's quality and efficiency thanks to his growing pool of knowledge and access to improving technologies. And yet, the break-even price for Hal to maintain profitability slow, slowly marches upwards. If Hal's customers want to continue purchasing from him, they need increasingly more money in order to afford it. While Hal is working to make things better for his customers, something is preventing his customers <clears throat> from being able to realize Hal's efficiency gains resulting from years of hard work. From a cu customer's perspective, Hal seems to be struggling since he must continually change or charge more to stay in business. From Hal's perspective, he is increasing productivity, but the rising input costs squeeze him to the point where he has to raise prices. Logically, we would expect an increase in productivity to lead to reduced prices as each unit of output becomes easier to create, and yet we actually observe the exact opposite. Productivity increases are captured by constant inflationary pressures. In Hal's diner scenario, we have two parties, the diner and the customer. If the diner is becoming more productive, we would expect Hal and or the customer to benefit. Unfortunately, the benefits for both Hal and his customer get diluted through inflationary policies. Rather than Hal increasing profits or the customer receiving a more affordable meal, the productivity gains are, gains are siphoned off via the increased input costs charged by Hal's suppliers. And we can't blame the suppliers for raising the input costs, though, because Hal's suppliers face the exact same dilemma. Hal's suppliers' input costs have also increased, causing them to charge higher prices to Hal. And, of course, we can't blame Hal's suppliers' supplier either because they, too, face higher input costs. <clears throat> so, where do all the productivity gains from Hal his meat supplier, and his supplier's supplier go. We know inflationary policies are the driver of price increases. The stated mission of central banks across the world is to stimulate the economy via inflation. Thus, if we trace the chain of rising input cost to its source, which is inflationary policies, we will find that the parties closest to the inflationary policy capture productivity gains of society. In other words, the party who receives newly created money increases its purchasing power, causing a relative decrease in the purchasing power of everyone else. This is called the Cantillon effect. Basically, those closest to the new money win while those furthest away from the money lose. While Hal's diner is on the losing end, we can view the winning side of the Cantillon effect with another simple example. If Haley's car dealership creates a fresh $1 million out of thin air, she can instantly afford to buy more goods and services than her peers. If she spends the million dollars on new inventory, her supplier gain, or her suppliers gain an advantage over the competitors. As the second recipient of this $1 million, the suppliers have an advantage over everyone except Haley, the original recipient. The suppliers can now increase their resources thanks to the freshly created $1 million but their competitors cannot. As this $1 million continues to be cycled throughout the economy, each recipient receives a lesser advantage than the person before them. The first people to receive the newly created money are actually wealthier since this new money has yet to be priced in. They will see income go up before, <clears throat> before their costs rise to reflect the increased amount of money in the system. Down the chain, however, people only feel wealthier. In reality, it's just a mirage. They have more money than before, but so does everyone else. This is Hal's exact scenario. He receives more revenue, but so do his suppliers and competitors. In other words, 
Those receiving the new money last will be forced to chase higher incomes in order to keep up with rising costs. The winners of the Cantillon effect are those lucky enough to participate in the rising incomes cascading down throughout the economy, starting with the recipient of the new money. The losers are those unlucky enough to be hit with increased costs perpetuated by the rising incomes of the winners. Where does Bitcoin fit in? In the current system, new money is created by the wealthy and powerful, giving them and anyone closely interacting with them an advantage over everyone else. These people can create as much money as they see fit. With Bitcoin, new units can only be created by miners that provably contribute hash rate to secure the protocol. Bitcoin's monetary policy is set in stone and verifiable by network participants. Thus, the miners cannot create as many new Bitcoin as they see fit. They are subject to the rules of the Bitcoin protocol, just like everyone else. In short, the existing system allows for those in power to use the Cantillon effect to a nearly limitless extent, while Bitcoin strictly limits the impacts of any Cantillon effect. So, there you go. <laughs> that's a good, that's a, a, a good way to look at the Cantillon effect. We talk about it a lot in this space, so if you didn't know what it was, that's what it is. But let me give you another, another scenario here that's real. BlackRock as a hedge fund. They're close to the money printers. They're as close as you can be to the money printers. And with the money printers going burr, all of a sudden BlackRock has a whole shit ton of cash that they're sitting on. Well, they're not dumb, okay? They're, they're not, they don't want to sit on cash either. However, they're not smart enough to buy Bitcoin. So what do they do? They find a middle ground. What is it? Single family homes, which they've been snapping up at 25 to 30% over market pricing. Which means that if I sell my house, let's say I put my house on the market for two hundred thousand, I might be able to sell it to you know BlackRock for you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Nobody else can afford that. They can. Why? Because they're sitting on a lot of cash. Is everybody else? No, not like that. Nowhere close. So what happens to housing prices? Well, they go up. Which means now. You've got to you've got to hustle for a raise or work start working a second job or something to be able to participate in quote unquote the American dream. And it's slowly slipping away. Actually, it's not slowly slipping away. It's actually gaining some damn speed here. People like BlackRock have an awful lot of money to spread around. And for whatever reason, they have chosen single family residential homes as their meal of choice right now. I'm sure that they'll start looking at other assets after a while, but for right now, it's pushing housing way, 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 way out of the reach of your normal human being. Now, the dip. Now, I've said, I've said um, a couple of times earlier today about the fact that we got good news out of El Salvador, and what did it do? It pushed the price down. Well, yeah, maybe there's a little bit more going on to that as well. And here it is. Binance served warning by Japan's FSA for operating without authorization. Osato Avan Namoyo is writing this one for Cointelegraph. Uh, crypto trading platform Binance may once again be heading for a standoff with financial regulators in Japan. <coughs> Excuse me. On Friday, the financial services agency issued a warning to Binance accusing the company of offering crypto exchange services in the country without registration. The agency also served a similar warning in crypto derivatives trading platform Bybit back in May. After China banned crypto trading in uh, 2017, Binance, along with many other Chinese exchanges, moved to Japan. Soon after, the FSA made Japan become the first jurisdiction to develop clear-cut crypto exchange rules, which, among other requirements, mandated compulsory national registration and licensing for platforms looking to operate within the country. While exchanges such as Huobi complied with the FSA's directives, Binance elected <clears throat> to move its operations to Malta in March of 2018. As previously reported by Cointelegraph, Binance first announced plans to restrict customers from Japan back in 2020. Japan's amend amended Payment Services Act, which went into effect in the second quarter of 2020, also provided greater clarity for crypto exchanges in the country, albeit with more stringent regulatory provisions. A planned partnership with Japan-based digital asset exchange Taotao also fell through in October, halting any re-entry attempts for Binance into the country's market. 
Japanese financial services giant SBI eventually acquired Taotao a few days after ending negotiations with Binance. A Binance spokesperson told Cointelegraph that the exchange, quote, does not currently hold exchange operations in Japan, nor do we actively solicit Japanese users, uh, adding that it does not comment on regulatory matters. But they did say, quote, what we can say is that we take a collaborative approach in working with regulators and we take our compliance obligations very seriously. We are actively keeping abreast of changing policies, rules, and laws in the new space. End quote. The crypto exchange giant has come under scrutiny from regulatory agencies in several jurisdictions. The company reportedly came under investigation by both the United States IRS and the Department of Justice. Binance stock token trading also drew attention from German and British securities watchdogs back in April. In September of 2020, the Financial Action Task Force characterized Binance's jurisdiction hopping as being indicative of a crypto exchange looking to avoid regulations. Well, why wouldn't you? If you can, why wouldn't you avoid regulations? I mean, that's just, a, you just I, honestly, it's like if you have a fiduciary commitment to anybody, then you should be looking to avoid regulations because regulations compliance is expensive. So it's, it would be a fiduciary commitment of anybody to figure out where they can go that they're not going to be regulated to the point that they start incurring financial losses until the end of the road. If when you finally get <clears throat> to the last country and they say, nope, we got to regulate your ass, that's when you can say, my fiduciary commitment to this company is done. There is no place left. Everything is regulated. We got to go with it. That's when you do it, but not a damn day before if you can. If you can avoid that shit, you have a commitment to avoid that shit until you can, in which case you got to do it. Anyway. Binance CEO Shengpeng Zhao has previously responded to allegations of unlawful activity, stating that the exchange complies with KYC and AML policies. Tweeting on Thursday, Zhao published a letter of commendation from the United Kingdom Southeast Regional Organized Crime Unit praising the exchange's efforts in the fight against dark net narcotics vendors. Binance did not immediately respond to, to the a request. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, that is exchange FUD, and we get that all the time. So was was that, did Japan get a phone call and say, shit, bro, El Salvador just dropped 30 bucks in Bitcoin on all of its citizenry, come up with something, and Japan said, yes, sir, how high? Let's run the numbers. CNBC Markets, We've got all the indices in the green today. S&P 500 up a quarter point. NASDAQ, however, is flat. Dow Jones is up 0.68%. FTSE is up a third. Nikkei is up two thirds. The Hang Seng is up almost a point and a half. Shanghai is up 1.15%. So there's your indices. Looks like they're having an okay day. Uh, bond yields are all pushed up on the 10, 30, and five-year bonds. Uh, yields are as such. 10-year is yielding 1.5%. 30-year bond is uh, yielding 2.15%, and the five-year is 0.92%. Oil having a banner day yet again. Uh, West Texas Intermediate coming in at $73.99. Man, almost 74 bucks, dude. And that's after a point, an almost full point gain on price. Natural gas 2.55% to the upside. We are now at $3.50 for a thousand cubic feet. Holy shit. Gold likewise seeing gains, although not to Peter Schiff's satisfaction. 0.14% to the upside has gold at 1779.3. I like it when gold's at 1776. I don't know why. Silver likewise up, but much more. 0.3% uh, coming in at $26.13. And let's see. Okay, yeah, let's just go ahead and do real money. As, as noted, we have a dip. We're back down to $32,806. Uh, according to bitinfocharts.com, that is 224,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours gives us about 10,000 transactions per hour on average with 670,500 BTC being sent in the past 24 hours. That's 27,900 BTC being sent every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 2.99 BTC and a median transaction value of 
0.025 BTC. That's actually low. It's coming in at $832. Block times are still high. Why? Because we're waiting on the difficulty adjustment and a lot of miners are offline because China. Anyway, block times are 13 minutes and 35 seconds. 0.44 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis. Uh, 47 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. And with a 7.66% jump of hash rate to the upside, we are back above 100 at 104.82 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin experience or indicator rather is Dogecoin at almost a quarter, almost a full United States quarter dollar. Jesus. Uh, I don't know, man. It was down to 19 cents yesterday. Whatever. Anyway, let's see. Clark Moody's got uh, 16,213 transactions waiting on 20 blocks to clear his mempool. Uh, we have $614.9 billion of market capitalization. That is 5.29% of gold's entire market cap. And we can now only buy 18.4 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our Bitcoin of which there are 18,742,422.75 BTC in circulation. 1,612 of those sons of bitches are in the Lightning Network at a capacity value of $52.8 million, being run over 11,939 Lightning nodes, with 50,517 payment channels open, or at least the ones that we know about. There are, in fact, or there is, in fact, 64.5% of the Lightning Network now being run over Tor. I do believe that that's an all-time high. There are 1,039.62 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that's being run over 6,519 nodes that we know about, and that's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Key indicator shows capital beginning to flow back into Bitcoin. This is out of Coindesk and it's written by Amkar Godbull. Gotta love that name. An indicator that has historically marked major price bottoms is pointing to a renewed flow of capital into Bitcoin. The stablecoin supply ratio oscillator created by analyst Willie Wu and tracked by blockchain analytics firm Glassnode has risen from a 12-month low of minus 2.6 to negative 1.9 in the past four weeks. The recovery indicates capital has been flowing from stablecoins into Bitcoin, Glassnode tweeted Thursday. In other words, bargain hunters look to have employed stablecoins to buy the dip in Bitcoin and broader crypto markets. Stablecoins are cryptocurrencies with value tied to an external reference like the U.S. dollar. They are essentially proxies for fiat currencies offering a price stability advantage that other digital assets do not have and are widely used to fund crypto purchases. The total market capitalization of stablecoins has surged tenfold year over year to more than $100 billion, according to Mazzari. The stablecoin supply ratio is the ratio of the Bitcoin supply and the stablecoin supply denoted in BTC. Quote, when the ratio is low, the buying power for Bitcoin is high, as the same amount of USD can buy relatively more BTC. Conversely, a high ratio means fiat has weak buying power, in quote, Glassnode said in an explainer blog post. The stablecoin supply ratio oscillator helps traders identify extreme readings on the SSR and any impending trend change. The metric, however, doesn't consider the fiat-based trades of Bitcoin uh, or Bitcoin derivatives and is not a perfect indicator. Remember that, people. All models are broken. <laughs> Some are useful. This is one of them. Nevertheless, it has proved to be a reliable indicator of the changes in the past. For example, Bitcoin's previous bull runs including the one seen in the final quarter of 2020, kicked off with a below negative two reading on the oscillator. So the recent recovery could be a signal of an impending change of fortunes for Bitcoin and broader crypto markets. Bitcoin is cur currently trading near 33,560, representing a 3% drop on the day. The leading cryptocurrency fell sharply in mid-May and has been restricted mainly to the $30,000, $40,000 range ever since, barring the temporary dip to $29,000 earlier this week. The market capitalization of Tether, 
the largest stable coin has increased from $59 billion to over $64 billion in the past four weeks. Ooh, it could be interesting. So there you go. Uh, there's Honestly, I, I, when I tweeted this particular news story out, um, I said, this is becoming exhausting. You know, it's just like this, it's like this, uh, like Twitter is my own indicative oscillator. And I'll see people like going up, we're going up again and uh, oh, we're going down again. And it's like, and then all these reasons come out for why. And it's just after a while, I'm just like, I'm all like bleary eyed and I'm confused and I just want to curl up and, and like you drink myself into a fucking coma. Just, I just want to wake up and have all the haters just gone because I'm, I'm tired of battling the crap. I think a lot of us are really fatigued at this point for just the constant defense, constantly defending Bitcoin against people that we know do not have the best interest of the people of the world in mind. And they've been, we've let them grow immensely strong. And it's gonna take an immense amount of effort from us to even make a dent in their armor, but dents we shall make until that armor finally falls away. Or the giant just dies of natural causes, which is probably more likely what's going to happen anyway. <clears throat> oh, and indicative of, of the giant dying of natural causes, we have this. We're living through the first currency system shift in 50 years, says Dylan LeClaire from Bitcoin Magazine. United States Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, quote, We can't tolerate any chance of defaulting on the government debt. And there is a lot of uncertainty, end quote. Consider this a signpost. This statement by Yellen, while assumed by most investors, is just another sign of the times. For those who are not yet aware, we are living through the first bursting global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years and the first currency system shift in 50 years. Sovereign debt bubble? Currency system shift? Yeah, you heard that right. When Janet Yellen, former chair of the Federal Reserve, <clears throat> and incumbent U.S. Treasury Secretary states that the U.S. will not be allowed to default on its debt obligations, she's right. The federal government will not explicitly default on its debt. Instead, it will implicitly default, which is in fact exactly what is happening today. Money printer go burr, baby. What exactly is the difference between implicit and explicit default, you ask? While the history of government defaults is quite nuanced, fill out your bingo cards, we will briefly examine two examples of sovereign default, both of which occurred in the United States over the last century to provide some context. Here we are in the Roaring Twenties. The 1920s were known as the Roaring Twenties, and for good reason, following the conclusion of World War I, U.S. productivity soared as inventions and technological advances, such as the mass production of the radio and automobile, brought about the most prosperous times in all of recorded history. Not only was technological advancement occurring, but the stock market absolutely soared, bringing about wild enthusiasm as everyday people grew wealthy, as the Dow Jones Industrial Average nearly grew by a factor of five from 1920 to 1929. However, the booming stock market was not a result of a new paradigm of productivity or financial markets like many believed at the time, but rather was mostly due to unchecked credit expansion which created a massive asset bubble, hence BlackRock buying up all the houses. Can you see, can you see the mirror image here, people? During the later years of the 1920s, many individuals and entities would borrow solely to invest in the stock market that seemed to only go up. Collateral values increased more than, or oh, sorry, collateral values increased, then you get more credit-worthy borrowers, then easier credit, then additional credit expansion, and then higher asset prices, and it just becomes a virtuous cycle. However, like all credit-fueled asset bubbles, there was eventually a bust, and what followed was among the most notorious financial market collapses ever. The, D, the Dow Jones Industrial collapsed by 85% in a little less than three years as the virtuous cycle of a credit boom worked in reverse. Collapsing prices begets forced margin calls due to falling collateral value, which begets lower creditworthiness, which begets tighter lending conditions. And then I guess asset prices start to fall after that. However, at this time, the dollar was pegged to the value of gold, which limited the Fed's ability to ease as any easing of the money supply would have to be backed by additional gold reserves. Thus, all 
of the credit extension and fractionally reserved money in circulation collapsed back into the gold peg as the malinvestment attempted to liquidate itself from the system. Here's a quote from Ray Dalio's book, Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises. Quote, typically governments with gold, commodity, or foreign currency pegged monetary systems are forced to have tighter monetary policies to protect the value of their currency than the governments with fiat monetary systems. But eventually the debt contractions become so painful that they relent, break the link, and print, i.e. either they abandon these systems or change the amount slash pricing of the commodity that they will exchange for a unit of money. For example, when the value of the dollar and therefore the amount of money was tied to gold during the Great Depression, suspending the promise to convert dollars into gold so that currency could be devalued and more money created was key to creating the bottoms in the stock and commodity markets in the economy. Printing money, making asset purchases, and providing guarantees were much easier to do in the 2008 financial crisis as they didn't require a legalized and official charge in the currency regime, end quote. Gold has historically not only served as a hedge against monetary inflation during a credit boom, but also during the deflationary bust that follows and the accompanying counterparty risk that comes with that. In 1933, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102, which mandated that all privately owned gold be handed over to the government. Shortly after, in 1934, Roosevelt revalued the gold peg from $20.67 per troy ounce to $35 per troy ounce. The stated reason for the order was that hard times had caused hoarding of gold, stalling economic growth, and worsened the depression, end quote. The reality was that this was no fault of greedy gold hoarders. This was an explicit default. The United States dollar, which was pegged to a known amount of gold, was no longer redeemable at the conversion rate, and U.S. citizens were the ones burdened with the devaluation. There was not enough gold in reserves to redeem all of the claims in circulation. This was a direct result of fractional reserve banking. Thank you, Dylan LeClaire. I appreciate that little primer on what's going on with that. However, it should be noted what happened pretty much very quickly after that. World War II. What's the best way to get your economy back? Have a war, which does, I don't think it works anymore, but back in the day, worked just fine because after World War II, same shit happened, dude. Just not, I mean, clearly not to the extent. Although where we are now with BlackRock buying all the homes and the you know, stonks only go up, it's a pretty clear mirror image of what happened in the, at the end of the 1920s. So I don't know what to tell you. Buy the dip, dude. BTFT. Bitcoin miner Terra Wolf to merge with NASDAQ-listed Iconics. This is Coindesk Jamie Crawley. Terra Wolf, an environmental, social, and governance-focused Bitcoin mining company, is set for a NASDAQ listing after it agreed to merge with Iconics, an imaging technology company whose stock trades on the NASDAQ. Why does this remind me of the Kodak miners? If you don't know what I mean by Kodak miners, that was a, that was a fun times, baby. Fun times. Moving on. The two agreed to form a new holding company, an announcement Friday said. The new company will bear Terra Wolf's name and is expected to trade on NASDAQ under the ticker symbol, symbol Wolf, W-U-L-F. Paul Prager, chairman and CEO of Terra Wolf, will hold the same positions in the new company. Iconics investors will receive $5 in cash and one share in the new company for each share that they hold. Iconics stock closed at $11.30 on Thursday. They will also receive one contingent value right, which is the CVR. The CVRs, which won't be publicly traded, entitle them to 95% of the proceeds from a sale of Iconics imaging business and will expire after 18 months. TerraWolf aims to mine Bitcoin with over 90% zero-carbon energy. It has more than 60,000 mining machines on order, giving it 50 megawatts of mining capacity. It expects that to grow by 800 megawatts by, ooh, good God, 2025. 800 megawatts by 2025, enabling a hash rate of more than 23 exahashes per second, which means the machines will be able to compute more than 23 quadrillion calculations per second. As of Thursday, Iconics had a market cap of $22.3 million. So, okay, look, this is more about that ESG bullshit, which I do believe is, is 
obvious bullshit. However, I cannot escape the following issue. I have more people interested in, in mining Bitcoin and they want to use renewables. Now, I can laugh at that and I can say that you're following a bullshit narrative, but in the end, what am I getting? Bitcoin's becoming more secure. So maybe, possibly, unless we're, where we should fight ESG is the mining companies that are like, like if some, somehow or another, uh, let's say Great American Mining uh, using flare gas gets, I don't know, pegged by the U.S. government as being non-ESG compliant, even though it's clear that what they're doing is better for the environment than just releasing pure methane, which is 10 times worse than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And there's no real methane sink like there is a CO2 sink. Uh, we just, I talked about that yesterday. We destroyed our agricultural lands, and that's why we're having an increase in CO2 because there's no place for it to go. It used to go into the prairies and the grasslands, not anymore because we monocultured everything to death. But let's say that that happens. Well, that's when we should fight the ESG narrative. But if somebody wants to do it on their own terms just because they want to do it, I'm getting to the point now where I'm like, okay, as long as you don't force me or like somebody like Gam or Steve Barber to fall in line with your bullshit and, st and, and have to change their production model because of the ESG nonsense, then that's fine. But if you do force a model change on these people that have pioneered this stuff, that's, that's where the fight needs to be. So like, am I worried about TerraWolf being an ESG compliant Bitcoin miner? Not really. However, we should always guard against the ESG narrative being forced on somebody just because they don't like them. Th that's the problem with ESG, All right? So it's, it becomes a real, it becomes like being caught in the middle of a tug of war. And it's kind of painful to watch. But in the end, remember, we're getting better security on the network. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, all good, but everything is good for Bitcoin. Moving on, crypto giant FTX buying a stake in Stockwitz, says sources and Jeff John Roberts, who's telling us about it from Decrypt. Cryptocurrency exchange FTX has signed a series of splashy sports and entertainment deals this year. Now, according to multiple sources, FTX and its exuberant founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, are making a foray into media by taking a stake in Stockwitz, which is a popular social investing site. According to two sources who spoke on condition of anonymity, the deal will involve an initial investment by FTX of around $20 million with an option to buy Stockwitz outright. Stockwitz declined to confirm or deny the deal, while FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried did not immediately respond to requests. <clears throat> the popularity of Stockwitz, which launched in 2009 based on the then-novel idea of combining investing in social media, has grown amid the recent mania for meme stocks. The company has a strong community of traders and claims on its website 5 million users. The sources say Stockwitz now carries a private valuation above $100 million, more than double the high end of the 10 million to 50 million range Crunchbase last reported in 2016. For FTX, the engaged user base and social media following of Stockwitz, which is 90,000 followers on Twitter, would provide new reach and marketing opportunities. Bankman Fried has also signed a rash of deals to raise FTX's profile, including sponsorships with Major League Baseball, the NBA's Miami Heat, Esports outfit TSM and number one NFL draft pick Trevor Lawrence, though FTX subsidiary or sorry through S FTX subsidiary Blockfolio, these deals total hundreds of millions of dollars. And speaking about the Miami Heat deal in May at the Ethereal Virtual Summit powered by Decrypt, Bankman Fried said, "quote I think we originally came at it because we wanted to really get our name out there, and this is one of the highest profile ways of doing it." <clears throat> Owning part or all of Stockwitz would offer another way to get FTX's name out there. And given <clears throat> that Stockwitz also runs a small trading platform, it has the potential to expand FTX's user base. In addition to drumming up publicity for FTX with frequent media appearances, Bankman Fried has also expanded his company to include an, oh God, an NFT marketplace, which while also working to build up Solana, a fast growing rival to Ethereum's blockchain, Bankman Fried's decentralized exchange Serum runs on Solana. So 
Well, yeah, some shit coinery there, but FTX has been in the news ever since the deal with putting their name on the stadium in Miami and working out the deal with the heat and all that shit. So I thought I'd let you know what this uh, Bankman Fried guy is doing. Let's see what else is on the chopping block for today. Oh, yep, we'll do it. We've got time. World's first Bitcoin ETF adds $3 million per day throughout the BTC price dip. William Suberg from Cointelegraph, the world's first regulated Bitcoin exchange traded fund, uh, actually benefited from the recent price dip data shows. As an on-chain analytics service, Glassnode noted on Thursday, the purpose Bitcoin ETF continued to add to its assets under management throughout the second half of May. In an unusual success story from the past few weeks, Canada's purpose did not see a significant reduction in holdings or demand after the BTC USD price hit $30,000 and under. Beginning May the 15th, an average of 86.15 BTC entered uh, per day entered the ETF for a total of 3,446 BTC between then and Thursday. In total, Purpose now holds 21,114 BTC worth about $720 million. Quote, ever since the May 19th capitulation event, the Purpose Bitcoin Exchange Traded Fund just keeps stacking sats, popular Twitter account dilution proof summarized in one of various positive reactions to the data. Purpose was the first such Bitcoin ETF to get the green light from regulators in February 2021. As Cointelegraph reported, the United States has yet to respond, but should the products likewise get a debut there, the impact could be more significant given the difference in size between the U.S. and Canadian market. Good fucking luck. Quote, how many countries are going to have Bitcoin ETFs trading before the United States? In <laughs> quote, Jameson Lopp, co-founder and CTO of Casa Quiz this week. The news provides a pleasing counter-narrative to the institutional trials facing Bitcoin's post-price drop. The coming few weeks will see unlocking of BTC stored in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, something that is expected to heighten already intense selling pressure. Whales have also come under the spotlight recently, balanced only by the players, such as MicroStrategy, which continue to add to their BTC positions. Yeah, they sure do. So anyway, yeah, it, through all this, we did not see that the first Bitcoin ETF, in North America at least, just continued to add Satoshis to their stack. It was an awesome thing to see. Anyway, that's going to do it for the uh, what's going to be the afternoon roundup. Man, I love it when I put my my browser back together. I won't get into what what what's going on there, but um, I have to separate. I, I generally separate my one of my browser tabs out to do the show with, so I don't see any of my other tabs. So when I put my browser or put my tab uh, for Twitter back into my main browser with all the other tabs, I automatically the first thing that I see in the Twitter thing because I'm always reading the stories and I'm not looking at Twitter. So the, the very first thing that happens is I, I come back and the first thing that I see is just a shitload of liquidated longs. And I'm like, son of a bitch, man, is it me? It, maybe it's my fault. Anyway, if it's my fault, I'm sorry. But for now, let's have a joke. Dad says jokes. I was forced to swallow purple food color. I feel violated. Yeah. 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 Woo. That was a good one. All right, it's Friday. We're dipping again. I don't know what to tell you. Just hold, just hold on, man. I, you know, this is where if you're in it for the long game, then you got to be in it for a really, really, really long game. Otherwise, the shit just doesn't make any sense. And you're talking, we're talking about a world shifting technology here, and it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to be easy. If it's not painful and it doesn't take a long time, it's probably not worth it. Buy the dip. You know, I think the STEMI checks are coming July the 15th or something like that. Uh, be prepared to use the powder to, you know, all your dry powder to, to buy the, I don't know, buy the damn dip. And we'll, we'll have to see what Paraguay does. I'm watching Central America very closely. <clears throat> I'm watching Africa in, in, intensely, both, both of the continents, you know, South, Central and South America and Africa. I'm watching, you know, this area very intensely. And I'm only, honestly... I'm only interested in what's going on in non-first world countries. 
the first world has shot its wad. You had your chance and you screwed it up through greed, through grift, through graft, through bullshit, through lies, through pedophilia, through hoisting, foisting, you know, quote unquote leaders upon us that have no intention of serving the public interest. And after decades and decades and decades, well, you see what's happened. And the West had it shot and it pissed it away. We'll have to see what Central and South America and Africa can do next. It's going to be an interesting shift. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.